Nine, 60 seconds. Best recorders, high speed. Five. Open solo fuel four, vent. Open. Three, two, one, zero. I would like to welcome you to our next episode of the podcast series Crossroad. My name is Maria Hermanová, and this podcast is created in collaboration with the research program Global Conflicts and Local Interactions, which is funded by the Czech Academy of Sciences within the Strategy AWE21. And for our discussions in this podcast, we invite social scientists whose research deals with burning topics and problems of our globalizing world. So today, it is my pleasure to welcome Maria Ivancheva. Maria is an anthropologist and sociologist, and she's currently employed as a senior lecturer in the School of Education at the University of Strathclyde in the United Kingdom. She researches inequalities and precarity in the academia and how it impacts the production of knowledge in the neoliberal society. And she was born in Bulgaria, and she spent most of her professional career in the U- UK. So she also focuses on the role of experts and academic community in the societal change and transformation in post-socialist societies. And since January 2021, she is the president of European Association of Social Anthropologists, and she is also one of the founders of the Breck Anthro Initiative that is trying to not only analyze, but also to find solutions to the unstable, precarious working conditions of anthropologists in Europe. And she is also, least but not last, a member of the Left East Platform, which is a progressive space for leftist-oriented analysis and a commentary on the political developments in Central and Eastern Europe. So welcome, Maria. That was quite a long introduction. Is there anything you want to add to it? No, I think that's fine. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. And hello, everybody. So let's just start. And my uh, first question is to be, uh, you know, both personal and professional, because as an uh, academic from Eastern, Central Eastern Europe myself, I'm quite curious how is your work and how is the fact that you deal with such a burning topic in the precarity in the academia? How is it influenced by the fact that you come yourself from the Central Eastern European region? What what role did it play in your career in general? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I I have thought of it in some ways, and and I guess I could push it a bit further. But I think starting with the fact that coming from Bulgaria meant that there was no program in anthropology as such that I could attend until master's level. It was quite pivotal that if I wanted to do a PhD in anthropology, I really needed to do it somewhere else. And if I wanted to study anything but the region, I really had to um, come to terms with the fact that some of the regional academies have much less interest in topics that do not concern our own grand national interests, as uh, anthropologist Claudio Lomnitz says. So we're living in a region which has many semi-peripheral and peripheral regions, is confined in terms of knowledge production to producing knowledge in a way for the West and for the Global North academies. And as anthropologists, we are often confined to the role of um, 
the best second-hand informants that collect the knowledge in, in that area. So I was lucky enough, I guess, to do my PhD at the Central European University's Anthropology and Sociology Department. And also as part of the Marie Curie program in social anthropology of Southeastern Europe, which was uh, coordinated by UCL mostly. And in that, um, this program was very specific that it required, so it had two types of recruitees. One was people like me who came from Eastern Europe and uh, were supposed to go and study somewhere else. So encouraging not to do anthropology at home. And then others who came from outside the region but were encouraged to study the region. So within that program, my choice of topic was Venezuela. So I went to study socialism, but in a different context and country than the one that I you know, lived in. And um, that produced uh, quite a strange career path trajectory for me. And I believe, and I have heard from others who have gone the same way. So going to study a country that is not your own um, means that you know, like on the job market, once you're finished, you're trying to either um, compete with those who come from that region that are much better connected, say, I've been competing against Latin Americans, you know, who, who have studied there maybe, and who have been, um, you know, active in the region politically, as I have been active in Eastern Europe. And likewise, I have at times been recruited to projects and places, spaces of intellectual production that think of me as an ethnic subject. So I'm the Bulgarian and I'm asked to speak out of my Bulgarianness as if that makes me an expert on my nation and country um, or, or region, more than I'm asked to speak about Venezuela, on which I did a six years old you know, long book length study and so um so that produces specific outcomes on the job market you're competing either as i said with with the locals you know with, which you're not or you're competing with so-called globals you know who are usually your global experts as uh, long needs also kind of points and so these are people that are either educated in but mostly you know like subjects in the like, citizens in the global north and they have the right to ask the universal questions and kind of be party to the knowledge production that um, can go anywhere in the world and has the legitimacy to be there so my choice was to try and transgress these boundaries but it's actually quite difficult to do it once it come with, once it came to the job market and then because I studied I studied intellectuals and I studied the role of socialist intellectuals in Venezuela in their attempt to change society in you know under Hugo Chavez's Bolivarian revolution project um, I did have to instead of saying I'm I study Latin America I study Eastern Europe you know or even I want to study socialism, I had to present myself mostly as a student of universities. And that was an interesting choice. It brought me to places like Ireland and the UK and South Africa, 
in terms of postdocs and new research probabilities, but possibilities. But by the time that I ended in that position, there was one thing that my biography was screaming, which was that I'm mobile. I can go anywhere. I can just be, you know, hired as a researcher and then be disposable within that market because I would finish a quick piece of research, enter any field, and then literally can go on to the next thing. So that that produced quite a long career trajectory for me when it came to getting a permanent position and quite a lot of meandering in terms of my um, first, you know, disciplinary, because I come from two disciplines, but then also regional expertise and expertise in terms of topics. And last to say about that, it, it also you know came at a time that um, Western universities were have been you know experiencing quite a significant crisis. So studying them on in their own rights has been quite prohibitive because uh, there's a lot of conflict of interest going on between uh, managers and academics about how much access you can have, about how much uh, certain statements can actually affect reputationally, be it the university or the private companies that they work with. So again, I was in a relatively difficult position. And I guess there not being from Eastern, not being from the West didn't really matter. What mattered was that I was not in a stable permanent position. and. A lot of times the critique that I would wage was considered as offensive to the institution or to my PIs or to, you know, the, the whole system that has been reproducing inequalities, which we as anthropologists and sociologists were called to challenge. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can't see it because our camera is off, but I'm actually nodding in agreement all the time. And also I was smiling, in, in, you know, while you were talking, because a lot of what you were saying is, you know, it sounds really personal to me. Like, it sounds like mm -hmm. you're talking about my own personal experiences. And if you have, because now you are in this position when you can actually compare between, let's say, the production of knowledge between not only Eastern Europe, but also places like Latin America and then Western universities, it's mostly UK where you are based now. So, and you also focus on, on the role of intellectuals. So, you know, what are the main mechanisms of inequalities if you were to compare it, these regions where you worked? So what mm -hmm. are there some main takeaways? I understand that this is a very difficult, like broad question, but. Yeah, so as everything, you know, con context specific differences appear, but I, I think there there are a number of, of you know, differences that I have also experienced through my biography and here's where perhaps you know we, we might be coming from similar trajectories being placing things in a different way so for me for instance it was completely impossible to find an academic job in Bulgaria and that sounds very paradoxic because um, according to kind, kind of western credential standards I would be exceeding in terms of publications um, Involvement in research, perhaps research impact, a lot of the people that are at my level in Bulgaria, just because of opportunities that we have received, I had a full scholarship. 
uh, I was encouraged to go somewhere else. Um, I had conference funding. I had the possibility without that much ado to go and uh, do an exchange uh, semester abroad for which I went to Oxford and so forth. So there were, there were a lot of opportunities that you can have as scholarship funded PhD student in the West, which you don't in the in Eastern Europe. But that said, um, nowadays in the West, increasingly studying, especially at postgraduate level, means paying quite substantial fees. In the UK is an extreme case, but we're seeing places like Ireland, the Netherlands, and so forth, introducing gradually kind of higher fees and you know um, more commercial forms of education. And so, so it's interesting um, to see that at present, being um, a student in Western countries and especially in more prestigious, quote unquote, you know, like in, in inverted commas, hubs of knowledge production, sometimes means rather accumulating debt hmm. and accumulating um, like kind of indebtedness, not only in terms of money, but also, you know, within credit within the system, the way that it has been in Eastern Europe. So Eastern Europe and, you know, I'm seeing still is somewhat more um, local in terms of, well, first um, interest in topics and uh, frames that are usually taken from European Union funding, because that's the majority of funding that comes to our national governments. Um, so the agenda setting is different. The, um, there is a very different, much more, or at least much more um, explicitly loyalistic way of um, cadre intake into the academy. So it is considered in many places, and I can think of a few exceptions in the whole region, it is considered more desirable to have studied with the local professors and to have stayed in local to your state institution rather than to have gone abroad. And so people like me who left um, are considered foreigners and it's much more difficult to kind of get get the job, which is not necessarily something bad that there is more uh, recruitment locally. But I guess there should be some variation and there isn't that much. And I guess the Czech Academy of Science can, can be seen as one of the, you know, partial exceptions, but they're like the majority of um, universities in the region and local academies are still showing much higher preference to cadres that are coming from their own schooling. And that means a lot of, you know, what, what could be called endogamy intellectually as well. So very little change in the systems, you know, paradigms that are taken, um, topics that are chosen and so forth. And then there's also the question of, uh, and that, that may be more visible on the undergrad level than or early postgrad and in terms of PhDs. But, um, you know, the, a lot of the work that's done in the region, especially when I left back some 15 years ago, was done much more through um, access to primary materials. So there was much less translation of secondary literature and um, or a lot of it was kind of quite antiquated to what we had to access. Now this has been changing, of course, but still there was much more 
um, sense of pioneering and innovation in the fact that you go directly, say I, I studied philosophy in Bulgaria, you go directly to Hegel, read everything by Hegel, and it is you that distills the kind of theoretical reflection without that much relying on secondary sources. And I think in, in say, Western Europe, um, there's much more reliance on secondary sources and much more reliance on a kind of being inscribed within a longer tradition. And then innovation is very difficult because you're kind of under very thick shadow. So that's another issue that I find quite interesting. And, and I've seen shifting within my, my lifetime, but it's still, you know, something to, to kind of explore and something that I think we are being shamed for, you know, at times. And I'm, I've um, heard, for instance, Chris Han, the anthropologist, giving these talks about how do you produce comparative knowledge? And that's been one of my main paradigms of thinking, you know, how do I compare Eastern Europe to Latin America? How do you think of semi-peripheries rather than thinking of regions? And, and his solution to that was to collect individual pieces from different academies of science say, in Eastern Europe and he or you know somebody from the West to write the theoretical introduction. <laughs> and for me that is an interesting and uh, you know slightly problematic approach to comparison. Um, but we're not encouraged to do comparison, especially within anthropology. So it is you know within our own career. So it, it has been one of the points for me to, to encourage that. And I, and I have been working with people who are, including in Latin America, who are interested in this kind of cross-regional comparison and thinking of, of, of kind of similarities and differences across regional boundaries and more related to historical process like, for instance, socialism. That's all so interesting. And I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have so many questions about this, but I just also wanted to know when you were saying that, you know, there is, there are a few exceptions or maybe a few places where uh, the pressure on staying local is not that visible. So I'm just wondering if that's uh, perhaps something that's also, or my observation, that's something that's coming from the European Union and there is a lot of pressure, you know, that's in the structure of the financing of the research project, there is a lot of pressure on sort of like internalization no in internationalization of the projects mm -hmm. but at mm -hmm. the same time it's usually it still end up being a consortium of you know western eastern countries it's still uh, yeah I guess you know uh, you know what I'm talking about yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that's and, and that maybe moves us to kind of some other questions that you indicated might might be interesting to discuss so the the structure of funding and the way that it has been changing and how it has been producing effects on ripple effects on academic hiring, publishing work and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and I think these are like there are two levels around that. One is the individual fellowship level. So say Marie Curie, which I was part of and many of us have been encouraged to apply to, has had this um you know very strange initial requirement of so because it was based on the idea of internationalization without much thinking of what are the effects, especially for people moving country to do work um, in terms of their career. So individually, that was a very big problem. And it was already in the 2000s when, when some of the first generation Marie Curie fellows started discussing these issues. 
because they were pushed to go and do, say, a PhD or a postdoc abroad. And then there was no career structure to bring them back. And then the response from Marie Curie were the reintegration fellowships, but they still bring you back for two, three to four years. Yes, so, exactly. Yes. And then and then you're again in a situation that, especially if you're not within that those years, reintegrated fully within the local academy where you're seen as a foreigner where you know a lot of times you are seen as a person that kind of puts the others at uh, kind of starker competition um, you you push them within their comfort zones and so forth so so there's this kind of sense of you're not desired like in in academies that are say more local yeah and that, that have different uh, structures of merit and uh, different understanding of successful academic career and so forth so that's that's i think one thing that needs to be acknowledged the other is the acknowledgement of these big projects which have now become especially career career makers or career breakers within yes, yes. the European Union. So I think that's what you were speaking of mostly. And that's your, say, Horizon 2020 or no, new frameworks and um, ERC, but also national uh, big project schemes like you know Norwegian, the DSRC in, in um, the UK, IRC in Ireland, and so on and so forth. So, so this big schemes where you can be a partner institution and in which obviously Eastern Europe is, you know, the little brother that is yes. encouraged to be integrated, but is very rarely integrated as leader of the project. And I've heard quite unpleasant, including, you know, in relatively progressive or forward thinking circles around European institutions of how, you know, these countries are um, not advanced enough in scientific production or, you know, kind of very uh, value charge statements. Whereas the bigger problem is, of course, the resourcefulness in terms of, you know, universities in the West have full departments which are dedicated to helping academics um, write research projects budget them, um, think of recruitment, think of everything that that's basically, uh, you know, that, that allows you to travel abroad to make such consortia, to um, develop academic networks and so on and so forth. So in this, Eastern Europe is at a very big disadvantage and it is clear by the number of um, successful slash unsuccessful rather applications. But while we're not changing the structure in which institutions in the kind of more peripheral regions are resourced, this is not going to change. And, and it is in a way convenient to have the same institutions in the, before it was the UK, and they're still eligible for a lot of funding within the European Union. So there's still a lot of this um, convenience around well, that, that allows the UK to have higher research uh, income as a country from European Union structures, let alone their own uh, you know, budgets and research councils. And that also means that more people migrate to these countries that are successful in this application. So it's like for European funding is the UK, the Netherlands, Germany in, in some hierarchy. And so that means these are the countries that are top recruiters of research staff, especially. And they're also the ones that in, 
in order to do that, give significant allowances, especially to permanent faculty, to manage projects, to manage research and stuff, and to, to buy themselves out of teaching. And here is where precarity is kind of to a large extent created, because a lot of the teaching only positions are given to women and people from ethnic minorities and migrant backgrounds, and that's a career end for them. Whereas the research positions, which are a bit more prestigious and a bit higher up on the kind of academic ladder and opportunity to gain a career, are usually gained by internationally mobile individuals. So that would be men, you know, because a lot of times they're not the caregivers within families and communities, and childless women. So, the, so this is something that both my own research and other research has found quite um, disturbingly, but you know, quite prevalent around around the place. And then the other difference that is related to that, perhaps, and you know, to to funding availability is um, the the kind of different types of precarity that that exists in east and west um, and it is i mean it's a very big overgeneralization which i have to qualify later but um, there's this one kind of quite prevalent model which is in in the west there are increasingly short-term contracts but there is still money in the system and in the east there there's still more kind of longer term contracts sorry permanent contracts open-ended contracts but in order to survive on this contract because they're so poorly paid you need to do three jobs yes and so exactly. that means you're you're kind of you're you're stretched outside of your work capacity in order to gain money whereas in the west you're stretched out of your work capacity in order to fundraise and in order to advance your career because it's still not very possible within the confines of a 38 hour week so these are these are differences that pit us against each other significantly but that are very difficult to um, unbalance and, and change unless we have an EU-wide policy for academic careers, so framework that would allow these differences to be mitigated when you, say, choose to, to migrate as an individual researcher or researcher within a bigger project, and that allow teaching staff to be equally valued within universities and promoted and eligible for staff and other allowances. And it is just not convenient for a system that privileges a few VIP individuals and uh, subjects the others to, you know, at their endless precarity and insecurity in order to substantiate those careers. Just, uh, I mean, this is a great, again, this would be a great opening for so many questions and we could talk about this for hours. I'm just wondering because when we talk about it, And again, I've been nodding in agreement all the time here, but I think like some of these trends, like, you know, fixed term contract, unstable contracts and, you know, uh, precarious jobs and, and, you know, gender differences, some of these trends definitely mirror wider 
uh, developments on labor market in general, like labor market in neoliberal society, and some of them might be very, very specific to uh, to academic environment. And so, if you and you already mentioned it before, so if you were to like pinpoint where does this start in the academia? So, what is the main cause of you know all these trends that lead to overworked, unstable, underpaid, mostly women. So mm. what would be, and specifically yeah. in the academia, because we all know why it is happening worldwide, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, so so I think that there's a few different things. And, it, and again, it could be context specific. And I'm speaking mostly out of, let's say, my more recent research experience in three English-speaking countries, which are Ireland, the UK, and South Africa. So, you know, the kind of, there, there's quite a lot of similarities there, but that doesn't necessarily extend that much beyond this context. And there are, there are differences also when you think of the US and so forth. But I think one of the main things when it comes to public university systems, is cyclical cyclical project funding so um, where you have something that happens similarly in Ireland in, in the UK in a way where you have research so so core budgets of universities cut uh, sorry divided into the teaching budget that is generated from student fees mostly. And, in, and then that can be different in different parts. So it's in Scotland, where I'm at present, some of it is state-funded positions. Like my students are state-funded teachers, trainee teachers. But that could be, you know, partly it comes from like fee-paying, especially international students. And then you have the research budget, which comes from um, external application through research councils, through public and private bodies and so forth. And so now before, and again, speaking of before, a country like Germany, for instance, with its um, system of habilitation has been one that has always had an enormous number of private docent and like people who are in on precarious contracts. And it has always meant since um, Marx Weber's time that you rely especially on your family and on your you know class income or support from a wealthy partner or some other structure of funding to be able to do academic work. So it's not something completely new under the sun. But what I'm speaking of now is you know this kind of division between on the one hand teaching and research budgets and on the other the the kind of um, situation of universities trying to recruit more and more students in order to pay into the budget of for teaching and that means um, universities trying to compete for ranking and competing for ranking they need to do that through research excellence so you're pumping up a lot of resources in order to compete for research excellence in order to get top public scholars and top publications in order to then get high in the rankings. And then in the rankings, you want to be there in order to attract fee-paying students who are going to be taught by whom? Well, mostly by people who don't do research. Because the people who do research are like steered heavily into research only and are steered to think of teaching as um, something that even if they like is 
actually uh, very much uh, contrary or kind of at, at a disadvantage to their academic career. So having first that, that year, he created between research and teaching and, and pitting them against each other. You're also having a situation in which um, at, um, administrative bodies within universities have expanded massively. So we're speaking of over 50% of university workers in the UK are nowadays um, administrative and management wow, type that's, of jobs. That's actually, I didn't know that. That's, that's a yeah, very high number. That's, it, it surpassed the academics like a couple of years ago. And, and so that also means a very specific type of support that on the one hand, we, we are, you know, kind of put into hundreds of systems in which technically you have to do a lot, but in, in which of these systems, I know you have to, you have to fill in your research profile. You have to fill in your teaching administration. You have to fill in this and that. But within each one of these systems, and they're usually softwares with their own outsourced um, IT support and administrative support and so on and so forth, you have some administrators that, that are there to stir you as an academic. So, so you're having kind of an extra level of... Um, communication that you need to put into that of self-management and and so that that kind of adds a lot onto these two other already quite heavy workloads that you have through teaching and research so so within that it's it's a competition of who can offload especially teaching and admin to others and this is where um, many times especially women and especially as subjects that are supposed to take care are given a lot of these heavy responsibilities in terms of teaching and not only classroom teaching, but also pastoral care, creating communities, um, you know, caring for students outside of uh, uh, teaching hours, and then doing a lot of the administration as a, a sometimes almost I mean, benevolent always, but sometimes also pro bono work as a kind of gift, you know, in, in very Mossian terms, as, as if um, you really own this because you love your profession, you love your students, so you have to extend this service without asking for it to be recognized. And if you do as a woman, you know, it's considered very problematic. If you do as a man, you don't even need to ask. If you do even more than the minimum as a man it's already kind of very much acknowledged that you are like a superstar of care and pastoral <laughs> involvement with students so and and this is you know of course there is a new generation now coming and i have been working with some supermen you know in, <laughs> in uh, academia who, who do admin who do teaching who, who really you know try to put in a very feminist way their their kind of load behind women around them because they know of this um, injustice. But the majority of people are just taking advantage of the situation that's anyway, you know, they feel stressed, they feel overworked. So they're trying to offload as much as possible and you know, just, just do as much as possible for research fundraising and publication and leave the rest to those who, who don't have another option. Yeah. And, you know, 
before I ask you what what could be done about it, which is a really important question, because as I'm listening to this, and so we, uh, this is a really bleak picture, really, of a bunch of really overworked, underpaid, very stressed people, but at the same time, the same people, you know, are are academics, are the experts, are the one who are, you know, responsible for producing expert knowledge. And at the same time, and this is definitely something that's happening in Czech Republic, but I think it's happening elsewhere as well as the, the role of expert knowledge in society in general, you know, is sort of being contested and being doubted. And in Czech Republic, the role of experts, and this is, of course, the pandemic plays a role in this, but that, you know, the the fact that experts have a role in the society and that is important, and that there should be a system in place which would enable the production of independent knowledge. So this is being somehow doubted and academics are being attacked, some, you know, for just, you know, uh, being useless and just spending money that could have been spent elsewhere, and this is this is definitely happening here. I think it's happening elsewhere as uh, as well. And I'm wondering if you know if all these trends are somehow connected, in your opinion? Yeah, yes, even if it looks quite different around here. So I guess the the skepticism to experts in especially in Eastern Europe, I'd say, comes from. A, a slightly different process, which was um, Western or Western endowed experts coming to solve problems in the countries after uh-huh. the fall of the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. you know, the, the end of the socialist regime, and um, producing effects that we're still suffering and that have made many of um, us live that our own countries not having an you know, secure income and promise future there. Um, just yesterday, there was a new counting out in Bulgaria. And Bulgaria has literally lost two million people for the last probably two decades. Hmm. And these are people who live abroad. So, you know, it, it's quite a stark um, migration process and um, you know this this whole issue I guess is in some way seen as the the doing of experts, the doing of those that came with the World Bank, that those that came with all the promised reforms from you know to the to the IMF in order to have our um, currency boards and mm-hmm. um, loans and so on and so forth so so there's i think you know that that's kind of one side of the story that we shouldn't forget and that yeah. probably explains part of the effects in eastern europe that are somewhat darker than than here you know in terms of trust in experts mm-hmm. and then i think the other bit is and, and again so so if there's one thing that i have learned about um how reform in universities have worked, especially public universities in the last maybe half half a century, is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So a lot of what we see today might be a kind of side effect of actually progressive reforms and of very legitimate critiques that were waged against the universities. And which I mean that 
for instance, there was a time when um, being an academic was an absolute privilege, and it is still for a very small amount of people, which meant you had a, quite a stable career. You had a job where you know you had a, access to library facilities, um, benefits, and whatnot, public yeah. contract with good pension and healthcare and, and everything. And you were left with no public accountability to do blue sky research. So, you know, appear roaming around in curiosity cabinets. And that was, um, you know, okay, that was when especially academia was much more masculine, it was much less massified. So students were also coming from very specific elite and clubs of society only. And um, being an academic, was something that needed revisiting, you know, it needed challenging, it needed um, more public accountability, it needed more um, proof that you're actually having some impact and not only publishing in obscure journals and having an internal competition for citations that mean nothing to the rest of society. And that you do use some of this research for teaching as well. So on the basis of that, there has been a push for research-based teaching on the one hand and on impact. So your and, and impact very often is measured through industry, academia, collaborations and yeah. interface. Mm-hmm. But the problem in that is that of course we are living within advanced capitalisms and both capitalism and both of these trends are now kind of squeezed to the maximum for profitability. And so the on the one hand, you're having the universities collecting student fees that don't get reinvested in teacher in teaching in the way that it really kind of nourishes the profession. But they usually get reinvested in something that, especially in the UK, is called student experience, which is building fancy facilities, leisure centers, um, like um, like rooms with bean bags where students can experience being a student. So kind of trying to um, model in a way the Silicon Valley model for students to experience creativity and innovation, mm-hmm. but also to, to encourage them to pay more because money has been their money has been reinvested back in their experience. And and in the meantime, the teaching has been totally underfunded and done by precarious faculty that have no loyalty to the institution, or even if they do, there's fools if I do that. And um, and so so you're having that side, you know, is completely commercialized, and students through the structures of debt are indebted to go and work on the job market in order to start paying back their loans and credits. So this is functioning to produce a very docile labor force for private companies. That's one side. And then we're having kind of the other side, which is the industry academia interface, which is basically translated into um, researchers working kind of for free for companies. A lot of, I mean, I don't know if you saw, for instance, the AstraZeneca vaccine that was developed by Oxford. Yes, yeah. Technically, a public university was like 98% of the funding for the research 
was public money. Yeah. But the patent yeah. doesn't stay with the public. The patent is then to the private company. Yeah. Yeah. And so that means, you know, a few things. You you have on the one hand, um, like a lot of the funding is stirred into a way that you're asked to prove that you're going to be working with stakeholders they call them stakeholders you know um, group outside of academia usually business is much more encouraged than say ngo trade unions and so forth and then you are encouraged to produce value for society and value for society means value for businesses yeah Businesses are invited on university campuses to hold a lot of space uh, in order to, you know, make um, shootout companies and projects and so forth. So there's a lot of kind of free or very cheap leasing out of property of universities to private companies that are also sometimes collecting data with very loose protocols from university users that are students. And then you're having also, um, you know, a lot of real estate that's been built in order to be leased out to private companies. So these are the dormitories for students, which are excruciatingly expensive. And many students can't afford to live there. So you're having this kind of collaboration in terms of research and other domains of academic life outsourced towards these companies that benefit from the public money that's invested in universities and in research, but that are not obliged to pay back. Mm. So again, through this whole culture, you're creating uh, a kind of university machinery that is steering public money for private profit. Yeah. And, and in that, so, so this is the kind of situation, especially in the UK, it's much less visible in other countries, but I think it's coming and we have to brace ourselves to to resist that. Mm. Um, so in so in this, you know, I think I think it is quite important to think also that a lot of the way that we do science increasingly is with view of what is going to benefit businesses. So, so critical social sciences, not that much, yeah. clearly. And then you're having yeah. yeah, and then you're having this situation in which um, say you already have to have structured the project in order to be approved as some kind of you know, financial plan in which you are promising your results before you have even gone to do your work. You're already promising stakeholder involvement before you even know if you would have anything interesting to deliver. And and you're stirred into this like constant um, production of this, this type of projects in which you end up over-promising in order to be given the money and then having to deliver all sorts of deliverables that make very little sense, but that are, um, you know, ticking boxes in terms of, okay, we're going to invite people from the private sector and people from the public sector and make this fantastic one-off event to showcase our research before we have even finished the fieldwork and found our, like, what, what we want to say. In that, if, if uh, you know, in order to get the company signed off, you have to promise them in a way that you're not going to hurt their reputation. So it becomes quite difficult to make actually critical research. And, and so on and so forth. So it is a, it's a very vicious circle that's already, you know, kind of full speed rotation. And it is very difficult to find a way out of that. But I think one definitely would be completely rethinking 
cyclical funding. That, that was actually my last uh, question, and I have so many, but we have to uh, finish slowly. So my last question. So yeah, is there something we can do about it? And I mean, obviously, uh, there are like you know systemic uh, systemic changes that should be made. For example, like re- rethink the, the process of, of cyclic financing, and I guess if you can think of a few others. And are there also some things that we can do, you know, on an individual level, like what we can do for ourselves, how we as individual academics, what we can do to sort of build a better environment for ourselves and for all of us collectively? Yeah, I I think individual action is very limited. But but that said, I think the 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 higher you are up in the hierarchy, the more you can do yeah. because you have more leverage. Not always more power, but you have more leverage and you have more independence. So first, I I don't think um, heroic gestures, which I myself did when I was uh, younger and in an earlier career stage, <laughs> you know, say deciding to not publish in, not even try to publish in top journals because that's you know reproduces hierarchies, is going to help much. It's usually a career breaker at best. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. Uh, but but then. I think so so there there are a few things that I think can be done and and starting from the you know micro to the macro well, one when when speaking of um kind of like academics in precarious situations I think we we should be looking for ways to create caring collectives among ourselves and for each other and where you know in certain cases you are not able to um, go against your own pi because everybody's so dependent as a postdoc or as a replacement teaching fellow on the person that gives them the job so it is quite difficult to be the one that attacks directly and it can be quite counterproductive so so usually having a kind of caring collective in which others can step in that have less to risk in a situation like that is quite pivotal and one would think that we are doing with with asa at present through the integrity committee is to have such a committee for the discipline mm-hmm. on a european level so that some cases that are difficult to solve within a university can pro- or department can come to us and we can think of ways that can be productive and, and not harm especially those in most vulnerable conditions so that that would be one level i think quite importantly then they're, they're like the more the higher you go up the ladder the more you can i think um just resist hyper productivity and bullshit you know like <laughs> So that so yeah, you know, it's up to you in a way how much you promise within a project and how much you are gonna over deliver. And and it, and I think you know, the more power you have in terms of your own professional development, the more you can start saying no and start saying no, not just to you know friends that ask you to publish a book chapter with them, but to to bigger institutional lunacies. Like for instance, many times when you work on fundraising, you would be asked to have a part-time job rather than a full-time job so that you cut your budget. Yeah. That you hire at a lower level rather than a higher level in order to have you know to, to have to give less. Um and, and so there, there are certain choices that I think we have to make and we have to make with view of uh, also encouraging early career researchers 
but also giving them security and some kind of kind of career progression. And that you know, coming to a next level, that's the the next thing. I think we can't solve such a systemic problem with individual even yeah. university and institutional actions. This needs to be national and European at least level career framework that really allows for clear trajectories into academia or outside of academia, but already from PhD level. So coming to the end of a PhD and being taught, well, now you have to think that there might be a plan B is too late. Yeah. Already spent six years at least in kind of just finishing one piece of work and not having paved to plan B puts you at a later age in a place where you have to start almost from scratch. And it is really not a great place to be. So so that's that's kind of the next level. And then the, the other levels are working against cyclical funding and for more um, kind of discrete decisions of universities of how to divide funding internally and then how to promote longer term program research programs and career trajectories. And so this this would be the things that I would be thinking we should all be investing in and investing also individual efforts into say trade unions or organizations that are having clear paths toward like you know clear programs of how to solve some of these issues and and precantro for once has been a force within the within ASA that has been pushing for that, and we have pushed ASA into working more with lobby groups in the European Union um, and and trying to kind of think of new ways of engaging research in order to propose solutions. Yeah, I have to say to sort of conclude in a more hopeful way that it really gives me hope that the you know. As an anthropologist, that you know, European Association of, of Social Anthropologists is a professional organization. That there there is a Precantro initiative. That there are people like you who are aware of all these problems, and that there is, you know, it gives me hope that there is someone in a position of a certain power who can at least talk to some people and who can try to, you know, push certain solutions. And I just, yeah, I just, I just really hope it's a start because a lot of the things that we were discussing today, you know, we we talked about general things. But I think to me and to many early career academics in my position, they feel really personal. So, yeah. So thank you. It really gives me hope that people like you are trying to do something about it. Well, I'm, I'm happy to finish on a hope, hopeful line, even if I think there's, um, you know, it's a very depressing picture that can be painted looking at universities and thinking how universities are spaces of privilege still what's what's left for um, much less privileged sectors of work is is very depressing to think but yeah let's finish on the hopeful note okay so let's finish thank you so much for uh for taking the time to to talk to me today maria it was lovely and thank you for inviting